peculiar time of the year when it's to know where you are and why you have been kidnapped. Well, the Bridge of Sighs. The guys who works here went psycho. Welcome to October by May. The short stories of Edward T. May. Presented by James Allen May. The wipers were hard-pressed to clear the snow off the windshield. Enormous, wet flakes bombarded the window in dizzying profusion. The driver muttered a curse and turned the wipers to the highest setting. Their pace became frantic, while the driver attempted to urge them on to still greater efforts with furious oaths. Still, the snow managed to leave a small accumulation after each sweep of the blades. The two passengers inside the windowless van, dressed in bright orange jumpsuits and manacled with handcuffs and leg chains, remained oblivious to the weather conditions. They were only aware of their destination, the state hospital for the criminally insane. The van slewed around the curves as it negotiated the hazardous mountain road. The driver hunched over the steering wheel, his face a few paltry inches from the windshield as he peered intently at the road before him. His eyes mere slits and a face turned pasty white with tension, the glow of the instrument panel furnishing him with a ghoulish visage. The van labored down Wolf Creek Pass, slowing every so often for obstacles in the road, real or imagined. After braking gently at a hairpin turn, the driver felt the vehicle slip sideways. He immediately eased off the brake and finagled the steering wheel. The tires on the left side of the van kissed the dirt on the shoulder of the road, then found their way back onto the blacktop. Starting to ice up, the driver mumbled to himself. The van continued its laborious descent down the mountain, wipers whacking furiously, defrost fan whirring at full speed. The driver noticed he was sweating liberally, suffering from that unique, prickly heat only car heaters seemed capable of providing. He kept the fan on maximum, but nudged the heat down a notch. As the van rounded a curve, a pair of headlights speared the cab of the van and sought out the eyes of the driver. He instinctively looked to the shoulder until the other vehicle passed, its taillights fading in the maelstrom. It was the driver's desperate desire to look for familiar landmarks, but he mastered his impulse. He knew the surrounding landscape would be obscured by the storm. He also knew it would be unwise to remove his attention from the road. He continued on, threading his way through the darkness and the weather. Presently, the van reached a level stretch of pavement. The driver recognized the spot and relaxed somewhat. Almost down, he remarked with a sigh. About time, too. No sooner had the words been formed on his lips than the van began to slew once again. Perhaps the driver, sensing he was almost out of danger, became a trifle overconfident, for his reaction to the problem was noticeably tardy. He then proceeded to make matters worse by overcompensating. The van began drifting towards the edge of the highway. The driver's exertions only served to send the vehicle careening back towards the rock wall on the opposite side of the road. The driver once again twisted the wheel too hard, and once again he overcompensated for the error. The van initiated a slow spin, eventually describing a complete circle. The driver managed to regain some measure of control, but in spite of his best efforts, the van was still headed, inexorably, off the road. The driver wisely waited until his vehicle reached the shoulder, hoping the tires would gain some purchase on the dirt before making another attempt to avoid the inevitable. It seemed at first his patience would be rewarded. The side of the van skittered along the rock wall for about 20 yards, evading major damage. However, looming in the headlights was a projecting crag. The vehicle proceeded apace until reaching the crag. On contact, the rock went viciously into the metal, moving peeling back the side of the van. The impact jerked the van back into the side of the mountain, bringing the hapless vehicle to a complete stop. All motion had ceased, with the exception of the seemingly endless flow of white from the darkened sky. The driver stared stupidly through the window at the rocky escarpment illuminated by the headlights. The wipers still performed their lunacy, while the defrosting fan threatened to fly apart at the next revolution. He placed his head in his hands, slumping over the steering wheel, and sighed. Oh. 
That was way too close, he muttered. Had the driver remained upright and alert, he would have observed in the side-view mirror a head emerging from the gaping rent in the side of the van. The head paused in its progress for a moment in order to assess the situation. A pair of shoulders quickly followed the head. Soon, the rest of the torso poured through the gash as well. After the driver managed to calm himself, he opened the door and stepped outside the van in order to inspect his vehicle. Only then did he become aware of the full extent of the damage. A look of alarm hardened his features as he gauged the size of the hole and determined it was indeed large enough to admit a human. He thought of the shotgun inside the van as his eyes darted back and forth along the highway. Cold links of steel began squeezing the driver's throat. He grasped frantically, trying to get a grip on the chain. The links retreated from his probing fingers, digging deeper into his flesh. Panic whispered in the driver's ear. He groped at the figure behind him in an attempt to slow the attack. He desperately sought a grip on the assailant's hair, his eyeballs, or his genitals. He came away with a handful of hair, but the chain never slackened. The driver planted his feet against the van and propelled himself backward. The move caught his assailant off guard. The driver heard a grunt as the prisoner was slammed into the mountainside, but the chain remained firmly in place. As the driver slumped to the ground, the chain was removed from his neck, and rough hands quickly searched his body for keys. The keys found, the prisoner stripped the driver of his clothing and unceremoniously stuffed his corpse through the hole caused by the accident. The prisoners proceeded to roll the van over the edge of the highway, with its headlights bobbing erratically as it shuddered down the cliff. The vehicle crashed through a grove of aspen and settled in the bottom of a ravine. In a conspiratorial gesture, the snow obliterated the tracks. The slapping of the van's loyal windshield wipers never slackened as two dark forms loped along the edge of the highway. The studded snow tires chewed up the thin layer of ice covering the road. The two men inside seemed unconcerned with the snow. The storm was lessening in intensity with each mile they drove west. The driver glanced at the clock. Uh, 4.30. Looks like we didn't need to start out so early after all. Storm's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. The passenger gazed out the window as he responded. That's alright. We'll make it to the trailhead with plenty of time to spare. Maybe even make ourselves a hot breakfast. The snow melted as it landed on the hood of the SUV, then turned into quivering beads of water, and was finally shed as the wind surged over the vehicle. The SUV was like a faithful, untiring beast whose only interest was in serving its master. The tires continued to chew and spit ice as the beast began its ascent up the mountain pass. The passenger retrieved a thermos from between his legs. He unscrewed the top and poured a steaming liquid into the cap. The aroma of coffee filled the interior of the vehicle. Coffee? The driver shook his head. No thanks, I'm fine. The passenger sipped loudly. <sighs> That's good. He said, as he looked once again at the driver. You sure you don't want some? <laughs> no thanks. Alright, you don't know what you're missing. The driver glanced at his partner, who was looking out the side window. He smiled and shook his head. As he focused once again on the road, his attention was drawn to something in the distance. Hey, look at that. The passenger shifted his gaze. Through the lightly falling snow, the headlights revealed a lone figure traipsing wearily up the highway. The driver began slowing. Didn't your mother ever tell you not to pick up hitchhikers? The man in the passenger seat asked. Sure she did. But after all, there's two of us and only one of him. The driver said confidently. Wonder what he's doing out here. I didn't see any cars. The passenger replied suspiciously. The driver couldn't resist a bit of fun at his friend's expense. <laughs> we probably passed it while you're pouring your coffee. The jibe was lost on his friend, who was only half listening. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, he's going the same direction as us. It's not like we're going to turn around and lose time by picking him up. Yeah, okay. Let's see what his problem is. The SUV passed the hitchhiker before pulling over to the side of the road. The passenger glanced at the hitchhiker as the car passed by, but could not see any facial features. The hitchhiker's face was obscured by the upturned collar of his coat. As the SUV idled, the men inside watched the hitchhiker's progress in the mirrors. Although the weather was unpleasant, 
the hitchhiker seemed in no hurry to catch up to the Good Samaritans. Taking his sweet time about it, the driver remarked. Must not be hurting too much. He rolled down his window and waited for the stranger to speak. Still, the men in the SUV could not see the man's face clearly as he tightly clutched the collar of his coat. The men inside waited for the hitchhiker to say something, but he remained silent. Finally, the driver, uneasy at the bizarre behavior, initiated the conversation. Need some help? The hitchhiker nodded his head. We'll be turned off in about five miles. Where are you headed? As the driver waited for a response, he heard the passenger door opening and his friend's startled voice. Son of a- The driver swiveled his head and saw a chain wrapped securely around the throat of his friend. Before he could react to the scene being played out before him, the driver too felt something cold and hard being clasped around his own throat. The driver was stunned by the ferocity of the attack. It felt like the hitchhiker was attempting to pull his entire body out of the window. Bob Tolliver, a 10-year veteran with the Colorado State Patrol, deftly maneuvered his car along the mountain road. His rumbling stomach made it extremely difficult for him to concentrate on his job. He began thinking of the Lone Pine Cafe and breakfast. He ticked off in his mind the items to be consumed in the feast. Hot coffee was, of course, a must. Eggs over easy, hash browns, and a small stack of pancakes. Have to make sure they get the eggs right this time, Tolliver said aloud. His stomach rumbled in response. More syrup and butter for those pancakes, too. Maybe a side of sausage. The night was fading, the time of day approaching when all objects, regardless of color, take on the same pale gray cast. The storm responsible for the crash of the prison van dissipated with the daylight. As Tolliver's patrol car neared the site of the van accident, The sun's rays were just beginning to illuminate the cliff. An unidentified object reflected the sunlight into Tolliver's face as he drove past. He pulled over and parked on the shoulder. He followed the reflected light across the highway and found a piece of metal partially covered with snow. As Tolliver stopped to remove the metal, he noticed scrapes along the rock surface of the cliff. He touched the scrapes with his hand. He inspected the immediate vicinity and could find no tire tracks. Tolliver turned his attention to the scrap of metal. It appeared to be from some type of motor vehicle, a side panel perhaps. He once again eyed the scrapes along the mountainside. He paced off the distance from where the marks began to where they ended. He removed his cap and ran his fingers through his thinning hair. Replacing his cap, he walked back to the other side of the highway. Tolliver peered down the slope into the shadowy ravine. He could not see any tracks or a vehicle. He was about to climb back into his patrol car, urged on by his increasing hunger, when he noticed some shattered aspens. Snowfall wasn't that heavy, he mused. Tolliver scrambled down the side of the ravine, sending loose rocks flying and creating a miniature avalanche in his wake. He followed the path of mangled trees until he discovered the vehicle. The face of the van was partially buried in the snow, the headlights still shining defiantly. Tolliver was surprised to find no one in the driver's seat. He was even more surprised to find a naked corpse in the interior of the van. After jotting down the license plate number, he clawed his way back up the slope. He wasted no time in calling in his findings. It took the county sheriff less than 10 minutes to join Tolliver at the crash site. In addition, the Colorado State Patrol notified the news media about the incident. Clues as to the whereabouts of the prisoners were virtually non-existent. It was a matter of guesswork, pure and simple. The authorities assumed the escapees were on foot. Since Tolliver's route brought him from the top of the pass, and since he'd observed no pedestrians, it was conjectured the prisoners were headed in the opposite direction, toward the town of South Fork. If the prisoners, in their desperate state, decided to quit the highway and begin a cross-country trek, the authorities were certain the remains of the prisoners would be found in the spring. With the manhunt underway and his shift over, Tolliver continued down the highway, his stomach gurgling in keen anticipation of his rendezvous with the Lone Pine Cafe. After covering about 10 miles, Tolliver noticed a car parked on the opposite side of the road. Two teenage boys stood next to the car and seemed to be in a state of agitation. When they spied Tolliver's patrol car, they began making frantic gestures. Tolliver pulled off onto the shoulder, parked, 
and crossed over the highway to see what the problem was. What's the matter, son? Tolliver asked one of the teens. Uh, over in the bushes, officer? Right over there. there there's two guys. I, I, I think they're dead. The teenager said nervously. Tolliver walked over to the shrubs, followed closely by the boys. Jim here had to, uh, relieve himself, and when he did, he found them, one of the teens explained. Tolliver found two men, dressed in prison orange jumpsuits. Ugly red welts were visible on their throats, the same type of mark seen by Tolliver on the van driver. Tolliver returned to his car and reported the incident. After being informed of the new developments, the authorities were confident in their decision to concentrate the search for the escapees east of the van accident. The discovery of the two bodies confirmed the fact the prisoners had gone in an easterly direction. Scant attention was paid to the area west of the van crash site. The two corpses found along the roadway were fingerprinted. The databases of various agencies were consulted in the hope of identifying the pair of men. One of the first tests performed was to compare the prisoners' fingerprint records with the set of prints taken from the corpses. To the surprise of no one, there wasn't a match. Whoever the murder victims were, they certainly weren't the escaped prisoners. They're expecting another storm. The voice sounded thick and dull and made no sense. What do you think of that, Tom? Then another voice blended seamlessly onto the first. This new storm is expected to dump around 12 to 18 inches in the southwestern mountains. When no reply was forthcoming, the original voice became insistent. Tom, wake up. Did you hear that? No, no. I I didn't hear. What's going on? They're expecting another storm, and it's supposed to be going right where we are. Really? Yeah. They're saying a foot, maybe more. What do you think of that? Well, Stan... Came the drowsy reply. I guess we're gonna get snowed on. That's what I think. You mean you don't want to call it off? Come on, Stan. We've hunted in snow and cold before. It's no big deal. Just checking, came the reply, coupled with a shrug of the shoulders. The two men halted their conversation as the radio announcer droned on. It's opening day of the second big game season, and I hope all you hunters out there are prepared for heavy weather. After this break, we'll go to Andy with some sports. I gotta be honest with you, Stan. That little nap really put it out of me. Are we almost there? You sound like a little kid. What's next? Are you going to ask to go to the bathroom? Well, I didn't want to be the one to bring it up, but now that you mention it... You've got to be kidding. Actually, I am kidding! (laughs) The men began laughing as the announcer reeled off the football scores from the previous day. Tommy boy, I'd say we're about 15 minutes away. The men lapsed into silence as the sports segment finished and the main news stories began. The announcer started reading the standard dispatches from the various wire services and then stopped abruptly. Wait, wait, oh, this just in. A prison van has apparently skidded off Highway 160 between the town of South Fork and the summit of Wolf Creek Pass. The van, en route to the state mental hospital, was carrying two prisoners. The driver of the van was found dead. Both prisoners are currently at large and are considered to be armed and extremely dangerous. Anyone with information on the their two men looked at each other. The police in- well, that's kind of spooky, isn't it, Tommy? Yeah, like something you might see in a movie. Yeah, now that I think of it, it is like a movie. It's uh, just like a Hitchcock movie. Like a what? You know, Tommy, Alfred Hitchcock. A blank stare was the only response. You're going to sit there on your skinny little butt and tell me you've never heard of Alfred Hitchcock? A shoulder shrug. (laughs) You must have had a miserable childhood, Tommy. It was worse than you can imagine, was the playful response. Uh, Don't worry, I'll bring you up to speed. Hitchcock stories always have an unexpected turn of events. That's what makes them so interesting. There's also a whole group of stories that are all about hitchhikers. Let me give you some examples. A guy's driving down the road and he sees a hitchhiker, so he stops and picks the guy up. They drive for a while and all the time the hitchhiker is acting kind of strange, you know, doesn't talk at all. The driver finally gives up on making conversation and turns on the radio. First thing the announcer reports is that a mental patient has just escaped and is in the same area as the hitchhiker. Of course, the driver starts sweating bullets, but what can he do? Does he stop and say the ride's over? He's too scared for that, so he starts thinking of a reason to stop, but... It's gotta be something that won't make the hitchhiker suspicious. So when- Is this a long story? Hey, I'm trying-
trying to educate you. Be patient. I'm, all, I'm almost through. The driver countered before returning to his story. So when he sees a gas station up ahead, he tells the hitchhiker he needs gas and he pulls off. The driver gets out and starts taking the gas cap off. The hitchhiker gets out too, maybe to stretch his legs, maybe to go to the restroom, who knows. As soon as the hitchhiker's back is turned, the driver jumps back in the car and takes off. He didn't pay for the gas? He didn't get any gas. He didn't need any gas. He never intended to get any gas. It was just a... a... a, a ruse. Don't you get it? Oh, oh, sure. Yeah, I, I get it. So as the guy's driving... What's a ruse? You want to walk the rest of the way? Sorry. Go ahead. So as the guy's driving away, pretty pleased with himself for being so smart, the radio announcer says that the escapee has been captured 15 minutes earlier and miles away from where the hitchhiker was dropped off. That's it? What? You didn't like that? Well... Okay, here's another one. Hey, isn't that our turnoff? Huh? Where? Right there! That's not our turnoff. We still have time for another story. Anyway, this next story's better. It starts out the same way. A guy's driving down the road and he sees a hitchhiker. He stops and picks him up. After they drive for a few minutes, they hear on the radio that a psychopath has escaped. The driver starts to sweat. Bullets. Yeah, that's right, smart Alec. The driver starts to sweat bullets because he's positive this guy he just picked up is the nut. He's trying to think of a way out of the situation when he sees another hitchhiker. He figures if he picks up the other guy, it'll be better odds, you know, two against one. So he pulls over and the other hitchhiker gets in the back seat on the passenger side. This new guy talks up a storm. He talks about anything and everything. The driver's starting to relax a little when he hears the first hitchhiker let out a gasp. The driver looks over at him, and the guy's eyes and mouth are both wide open. Then the guy slumps forward into the dashboard, and the driver sees a knife sticking out through the seat back. The second hitchhiker just looks at the driver and smiles. A stony silence followed the ending of the story. Well, Tommy? You mean that's the end? Of course it's the end. Don't you get it? Well... Okay, here's another one. No, wait. I... I get it now. Yeah, yeah, that's a great story, Stan. Too late. You blew it. A guy's driving down the road. Only this time, he hears about the escapee while he's still alone in the car. Sure enough, before long, he sees a hitchhiker and he decides to keep on driving. Then he notices the hitchhiker is a woman. And since the escapee was a man, the driver figures he's got nothing to worry about. So he pulls over and the hitchhiker gets in the car. The driver starts asking her questions. She seems friendly enough, and they talk for a while. Finally, the guy brings up the subject of the escaped psycho. She doesn't seem interested, and he can't understand why. He finally asks her why she isn't afraid. She turns to him and she says, Why should I be? At which point, she takes off a wig. Wait a minute. Where did the escaped murderer get a hold of a wig out in the middle of nowhere? It's called poetic license. What's that mean? It means the author can dream up goofy things because it makes the story more interesting. Ah, I see. Well, Stan, I am glad you clued me in on how deprived my childhood was. I'm sure I'll sleep better tonight. Anytime I can help. After all, what are friends for? Now that is our turnoff up ahead. Yep, that's it, alright. Don't worry, Tom. I'll think up some more stories for the trip back home. Hey, listen. Don't strain your brain on my account. The men parked at the trailhead and began to assemble their packs and rifles. It was then they noticed another vehicle, partially covered by the recent snow, and nestled comfortably between two enormous spruce trees. Oh man, I just hate it when there are other people around. Don't worry about it, Tom. His friend said consolingly. There's a whole lot of territory out there. I doubt if we'll even see them. I know, but it still bugs me. I mean... We come up here once a year to get away from everyone, and then... His words dissipated with the vapor from his breath. In the middle of a snowstorm, no less. I told you, Tommy boy, forget about it. Don't let it ruin the trip. The men hoisted the heavy packs and adjusted the straps. Hey, Stan. I just thought of something. What if there's two of them? Yeah, so what? There's two of us, so big deal. Is two a magic number or something? You know... Two of them? Two escaped mental cases? It all adds up. Who else would be out here at this time of year and in this weather? And why did they park between the trees like that? It's like they were trying to hide the car. I guess maybe I shouldn't have told you all those stories after all. 
They're starting to warp your mind. Look, they're probably just hunters like us. They parked between the trees to keep the sun off the vehicle. Maybe. Maybe not. I think I'll just have a look. Oh, come on, Tom. What do you expect to find? The men ambled over to the vehicle. Got Colorado plates. In case you hadn't noticed, Tom, we've got Colorado plates too. I know, I know. I'm just making a few observations. Both men brushed the snow away from a window and peered at the interior. See, Tom? Nothing suspicious. Maps, empty coffee cups, ice scraper. The same kind of crap we have in our vehicle. Now let's get going. We're burning daylight. Yeah, well, I wouldn't expect them to leave a body in there. He said defensively as he scanned the ground around the vehicle. Look at those prints, Stan! So there are two of them. Okay, okay, so there's two of them. It's just common sense not to come up here alone. Now let's get going. About six inches of snow lay on the trail. The men set off at a steady pace, the snow underfoot croaking in protest. The spruce and pine trees groaned under their burden of snow. Not more than a hundred yards from the trailhead, the path forked. The men stopped abruptly. Now what's wrong, Dom? Why'd you stop? Don't tell me you're tired already. Take a look. Footprints littered the right fork of the trail. If they went down there, then we're going this way, Stan. That's fine with me, Tommy. He said agreeably. Lead on. The men angled off and began trudging along the left fork of the trail. The men rested briefly at regular intervals. After hiking for about a mile, they came to a bald spot on a hillside overlooking a shallow valley. What do you think, Tommy boy? Good place for a camp? It's as good a place as any, was the stoic response. The men shrugged out of their packs. Soon, tents were erected and the rest of the gear was neatly stowed away. After constructing a fire ring, the men collected a sizable amount of dry pine needles, cones, and branches. Finally, they covered the cache of combustibles with a plastic tarp. What do you say we scout the area, Stan? Sounds like a good idea. Maybe we'll get lucky and cut some game trails. The men retrieved their rifles from the tents and slung them over their shoulders. Which way, Stan? Well, how about... Hey, what the hell? He muttered as his arm came up and pointed across the valley. Tendrils of smoke filtered through the forest and mingled with the overcast. Campfire. It's those two guys, Stan. Son of a... I wish we'd seen that smoke before we'd gone to the trouble of setting up camp. We'll just go the opposite way, Tom, old buddy, he said philosophically. Captain John Hudson of the Colorado State Patrol cruised slowly down the slushy street, squinting at the house numbers. He parked behind a late-model Toyota and turned off the engine. He glanced at the license plate, then consulted his clipboard. Hmm, right address, but not their car, he mused. Oh well, here it goes. Hudson walked up the snow-covered drive to the front door. After wiping his shoes on the welcome mat, he rang the bell and waited. Presently, a middle-aged blonde, attractive but slightly overweight, responded to the summons. As she noted Hudson's uniform, a look of anxiety overspread her countenance. Hudson was familiar with the reaction, best described as a combination of guilt concerning past actions and uncertainty about which one would be discussed. I'm sorry to bother you, ma'am. My name is Captain Hudson, Colorado State Patrol. I'm looking for Mrs. O'Dowd, Hudson said. I'm Colleen O'Dowd, the woman reluctantly confessed. I wonder if I might speak with you for a moment, Mrs. O'Dowd. Something about Hudson's demeanor assured Colleen O'Dowd she was not the object of his visit. She ushered Hudson into a room at the back of the house where a fire was glowing cheerfully. A woman rose from a recliner as they entered the room. Oh, um... This is Tammy Stevenson. Colleen informed Hudson. Tammy, this is Captain Hudson. My pleasure, ma'am, Hudson said warmly. Tammy nodded in return. I don't want to give any offense, Mrs. Stevenson, but it might be best if I spoke with Mrs. O'Dowd alone, Hudson remarked. Does this concern my husband? Colleen asked quickly. Yes, it does, Hudson admitted. My husband and Tammy's husband were together when they left early this morning. Colleen informed Hudson without elaborating any further. Hudson seemed slightly surprised by the revelation. Then I'll need to talk to both of you, he said flatly. They've been in an accident, haven't they? Tammy said, a note of hysteria in her voice. Hudson breathed deeply and sighed. 
I'm so very sorry, Mrs. O'Dowd, but we've identified your husband as one of two murder victims found this morning, Hudson said. Your husband's vehicle was stolen as well. But how? How can... Are you sure it's him? Colleen stammered. His fingerprints match those in a military database. Your husband was in the army, wasn't he? Hudson asked. (laughs) Colleen nodded as the tears began sweeping down her cheeks. What about my husband? Tammy asked Hudson. You said there were two murder victims. We couldn't identify the other victim. We weren't able to match his fingerprints with any database, Hudson admitted. Colleen sat down in a chair as Tammy patted her shoulder. I know it's the last thing either of you want to do, but it would help the investigation proceed if you could both come with me and help us make a positive identification. Both women nodded. They rose and wrapped themselves in coats. Their actions were mindless, one might even say mechanical, as they accompanied Hudson to his car. Look, Tom, if you're that upset about it, why don't we go down there and pay them a little visit? A moment passed in silence, the warmth from the embers soothing sore muscles. Yeah, why not? Let's take a walk, Stan. The men banked the fire, slipped on their coats, and switched on their flashlights. They plowed through the snow in the direction of the smoke seen earlier in the day. As they topped a rise on the opposite side of the valley, they perceived a glow close at hand and headed toward it. As they neared the fire, they called out a greeting. Hello in the camp! Is anyone at home? Almost immediately, a response was forthcoming. Yeah, we're here. The flashlight beams winked out as they came within the circle of light emanating from the campfire. Two men huddled near the fire. One was older, maybe late forties, with graying wisps of hair, eyes sunken deep in the sockets. The younger man was perhaps thirty-five, hair cut down to a mere stubble, lips clamped together in what was either a half-sneer or a half-smile. The older man spoke first. What can we do for you? My name's Stan. This here's Tom. Uh, We noticed you were camped over here earlier today when we saw the smoke from your fire. We just thought we'd be neighborly and pay you a visit. Isn't that right, Tom? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Uh, we wanted you to know there were other people in the area, so you wouldn't mistake us for deer. I mean, we wear the blaze orange vests and all, but you can't be too careful. The older man spoke again. My name's Jason. My partner here is Ron. Glad to meet you. Come on in by the fire and warm yourselves up. As the men seated themselves, Ron's eyes darted from one to the other, the sneer smile never altering. So, Tom, was it? You said you wanted to let us know you were in the area? Jason asked. Sure. After all, hunting accidents do happen. Oh, you don't have to worry about that. Um, We're not... Jason began. Ron raised his hand ever so slightly, silencing his partner. Really? Stan and I just assumed you were hunting. I guess we figured that's the only reason anyone would have to come up here at this time of year. Jason remained silent. Take my word for it. There are other reasons. Ron said mysteriously, somehow managing to speak through the sneer smile without changing its essential form. But if that's how you feel about things, then that must mean both of you are hunters. That's right. Stan and I, we've been coming up here every year for, oh, say how long have we been coming up here, Stan? I'd say it's been about eight, nine years. That's interesting. Ron commented, although his tone of voice indicated he found it not in the least interesting. Oh, by the way, I thought I'd give you a heads up. Stan and I were scouting the area this afternoon and we came across some cougar tracks. You guys might want to keep your guns loaded. Jason looked as though he wanted to say something, but maintained a sullen silence. Thanks for the warning, Ron remarked. (laughs) Don't mention it. Well, Stan, what do you say we turn in? That sounds good to me. It was nice meeting you fellas. Nods and smiles were given all around as the meeting broke up. So tell me, Tommy, what was that about cougar tracks? We didn't see any today. I was just trying to get some information, like whether or not they have guns. Did you see when the old man was about to say they weren't hunters, how that other guy raises his hand like this and the old guy shuts up? He didn't want the old man to let us know they weren't hunters. It sounded to me like they didn't want us to know anything. I think that's because they've got something to hide. 
The men continued on in silence until they reached their camp. As the men were about to enter their tents, the silence was finally broken. What's wrong, Stan? You haven't been trying to talk me out of believing they're the escapees. That's because I'm not so sure myself anymore. Good night, Tom. Bob Tolliver began his daily shift with a briefing. Hudson informed Tolliver the wives of the murder victims made a positive identification of the bodies, and dental records confirmed their belief. In addition, Tolliver was apprised of the license plate number of the stolen vehicle. The coroner's report stated with certainty the van driver's time of death occurred approximately one hour before Tolliver discovered his body. Based on this information, roadblocks were erected 100 miles in either direction from the crash site. The killers were still within the area delimited by the roadblocks. Tolliver decided to begin his day by cruising along the stretch of highway extending west of the point where the two murders had occurred. He wasn't sure the killers fled in that direction, but he knew it was time to start making a few assumptions. Tolliver's first assumption was that the victims began their trip with a full tank of gas. He also knew where their journey began, and the approximate gas mileage of their vehicle. With this information, Tolliver made some rough estimates. He figured the vehicle's gas tank was less than one quarter full at the point where the murders occurred, assuming no previous stops for gas had been made. Tolliver began the tedious task of stopping at every gas station, convenience store, and roadside cafe along the highway. He showed scores of attendants and waitresses the pictures of the escapees, and reeled off a description of the vehicle they were driving. Disappointment was heaped on top of disappointment, until Tolliver eventually found himself in the last town on the western perimeter of the search area. Tolliver, after questioning a gas station attendant, decided it was useless to continue west. Convinced by his lack of success, the killers headed east after stealing the SUV. Tolliver turned his patrol car around and cruised slowly toward the east. As he neared the outskirts of town, Tolliver spied a small diner. For the sake of thoroughness, he decided to stop. As Tolliver entered the diner, he noticed only one patron, an elderly farmer dressed in overalls, sitting at the counter slurping coffee. The waitress approached him. Coffee to go? She asked with a smile. <laughs> no, ma'am. Tolliver responded. I'd like to know if you've seen either of these men in the last day or so. Tolliver displayed the pictures of the escapees to the waitress. She stared at each for a moment before shaking her head. Sorry, they don't look familiar. She said apologetically. Tolliver nodded. Have you noticed a late model dark green explorer around town? The customer at the counter peered over his shoulder at Tolliver. I'm sorry, officer. I haven't noticed one. The waitress responded. I seen it, the customer said. Surprised and unconvinced, Tolliver walked over and sat beside the man. You've seen a late model dark green explorer? Tolliver repeated. Yep, the man said as he slurped a mouthful of coffee. In the last day or so? Yep, just yesterday as a matter of fact. You're sure? Tolliver said. Of course I'm sure, the man said peevishly. Were these men in the vehicle? Tolliver asked holding up the pictures. Don't know who was in it. They was moving too fast. Dang thing must have been doing 90 when it passed me. Where was it headed? West. Tolliver hurried out of the diner and pointed the nose of his patrol car back toward the west. A look of concern crossed his face as he noticed the storm clouds plunging the world into darkness. He drove west for 10 minutes, scanning the roadside for anything out of the ordinary. He didn't notice the two SUVs parked at the trailhead until he spied the turnoff in his rearview mirror. He backed up and angled his patrol car onto the side road. One of the SUVs was a dark green Explorer. The license plate matched the stolen vehicle. Tolliver called for assistance. I don't know about you, Stan, but I'm getting hungry. We've been at this since daybreak, and we haven't run across any sign of deer. What do you say we head back to camp for some lunch? Tommy, old boy, you know I never turn down food. Let's go. The men rose from concealment and began retracing their steps back to the encampment. During the morning, the clouds, massed along the western horizon since daybreak, began marching steadily eastward until they met the sun at its zenith and blotted it from sight. Like the outriders of an approaching army, a light snow began falling as the men reached their camp. I'll get the fire started, Stan. Why don't you... 
Why don't I what? Hey, Tom, what are you what are you staring at? I'm staring at those tracks that come from across the valley and head right into our campsite, came the heated reply. Those are our tracks from last night, aren't they? Our tracks are right over there. See? We had some visitors while we were out all morning. Well, I'll be. Check your tent. See if anything's missing. Both men disappeared inside their tents, and after a few moments reappeared. The rifle cartridges I left here are gone, Stan. Are you missing anything? They took my axe, the dirty... Look, Stan, we can't stay here now. No? Why not? I say we go over there right now and confront those... Hell, Tom, we're armed. We've got rifles for crying out loud. Why should we be afraid? Sure, we've got rifles, but we don't know what they've got. More importantly, we don't know where they are right now. But you can bet they're watching us at this very moment. If they don't have any guns, then they're going to lay low because they know we're armed. They're not going to let us find them in the daytime, and I don't want to take an axe in my forehead in the middle of the night. Besides, have you looked at the sky lately? Before long, we won't be able to go out looking for anyone. As a matter of fact, if we don't get going right now, we're going to be stuck in these tents for quite a while. If we were by ourselves up here, I wouldn't mind getting snowed in. But under the circumstances, I think we need to leave. And I mean right now. I hate like poison to back down, but I guess you're right, Tom. Let's pack. The men worked quickly. Sleeping bags, extra clothing, stoves, food, all the camping paraphernalia was haphazardly tossed into backpacks. Lastly, the tents were broken down and strapped to the outside of the packs. The men stepped off briskly toward the trailhead. The snow-laden boughs would intermittently dump their load on the men as they negotiated the narrow trail. The men noticed a subtle increase in the intensity of the storm and quickened their pace. By mutual consent, they decided not to take a rest break and pressed on. Forty minutes later, their hearts pumping furiously, their bodies soaked with sweat, the men reached the trailhead. They were immediately swarmed by a dozen lawmen, handcuffed, and promptly escorted to a patrol car. They stared forlornly out of the window, watching as Bob Tolliver took a statement from Jason and Ron. So you two are professional nature photographers, is that right? Tolliver asked. That's right. Like I was saying... I was suspicious as soon as the one guy started trying to find out if we had any guns in the camp. Ron said. That's right. So we kept an eye on them, and as soon as they left their camp the next morning, we took anything that could be used as a weapon. Jason explained. We knew they'd be mad as hell when they got back, so we packed up and left. When we came back here, we saw you. Ron added. Tolliver nodded and continued writing. There's one thing I don't understand. Jason remarked. It seems strange that they would stop here to camp. When they murdered those two guys and stole the car, why didn't they just keep on going? Did they somehow know something about the roadblocks? Tolliver glanced at the escapees, huddled in the back of the patrol car, before he answered. You need to keep in mind the fact that they're criminally insane, with special emphasis on the insane. In all my years in the state patrol, I've never seen or heard anything like this case, Tolliver admitted. What do you mean? Ron asked. When these two... Tolliver gestured at the men in the back of the patrol car. ...murdered a couple of hunters and stole their vehicle, they became the men they killed. You mean like play acting? Ron asked. It was more than that. For all intents and purposes, from their point of view, they actually were those two murder victims. They began living their lives for them, and that included going on a hunting trip. Look at them now. Tolliver suggested. They're confused. They have no idea why they've been arrested. Tolliver, Jason, and Ron watched the quizzical expressions on the faces of the escapees as the patrol car turned onto the highway. Oh, those wacky, criminally insane murderers. What will they do next? Well, I know what I'm going to do next. Thank my incredibly talented voice cast. Hassan Nazari Rabadi as the van driver and Bob Tolliver. Jordan Swearingen as the SUV driver. Dakota White as the SUV passenger. Freddie Stroma as the teenager and Ron. Shalom Nieva as Stan. Chris Culberson as Tom. Michaelia Lee as Colleen. 
Johanna Brady as Tammy, Paul Crane as Jason, and Jenna Romano Nieva as the waitress. Oh, and I was the other teenager, Captain Hudson and the old man, but I'm not thanking myself. Jordan and Dakota are guests from the Chambers of Horror podcast, which also just released a winter-themed episode today, so make sure you check that out. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Once again, I'm James Allen May, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of October by May. October by May is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes every other Tuesday. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single sojourn into October. Please leave us a rating and review, as well as any comments or replies that you may have for us. Also visit us at OctoberByMay.com for more info, as well as links to the books by Edward T. May. Insanity's Children by Edward T. May Recitation and audio design by James Allen May Theme by Hassan Nazari Rabadi.